Welcome to Season 2 of Soul Conversations, a podcast where two Korean adoptees uncover the heart and soul of what it means to be both Asian American and adopted through the sharing of adoptee stories. I'm Benny, and I'm Soul tonight, and this week we are joined by fellow Korean adoptee, Jeff Van Dam. Welcome, Jeff. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Yes, glad to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing fantastically. It is a cool day, so finally cannot complain about heat. Yeah, and then do you want to tell our listeners where you're from? Currently, I live in New York City, uh, Manhattan. We just had a lovely, crazy storm, so we are in the recovery mode. There are tons of dead rats in the streets, so it's a <laughs> it's a journey getting anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we appreciate you staying up late to record on the, on the East Coast. How has New York City been for you? You said you grew up in New York, but what part of New York did you grow up in? I grew up in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes region, Rochester area. So quite the like idyllic countryside, vineyards, lakes, boating, boathouses, all that, all that jazz. But yes, so yeah. seven hours away from... New York City. <laughs> what brought you to the, the Big Apple? I initially moved to the city. Uh, I went to school for music performance and theater. So, you know, New York being New York City, um, there is really only one option. Uh, so I made my way down here. And of course, the added plus of culture, Asian community, Korean community, Korean people, mm. other adoptees, um, those are all wonderful added pluses to the environment down here. Yeah. And so when you were growing up in the Finger Lakes region, what was your experience like? Did you have a lot of other people that, you know, had the same experiences as you or look like you? Or were you kind of the one that was standing out in the crowd a little bit? There were, I mean, there were a, a healthy amount of adoptees. Um, as I'm sure many of us know, there's like these little cluster regions of adoptees all over. So like the house where I went to go get babysat before school when I was like seven, eight years old, it was a house with a family who adopted two Korean children. So I would mm. be, you know, friends of the family. We'd hang out together, but, you know, none of us know how to talk about ident identity when we're seven years old. And it's like, she's three years right. old. She's just a baby. <laughs> I can't talk to her. Who's she? So it's like they were around. Um, I think a lot of other adoptees in my hometown, they were, whether or not uh, biologically related, but they were adopted brother and sister sort of doubles. So I think almost yeah. all of the adoptees I grew up around with all were sort of brother-sister combos. So it, I had people around to visually, like, you look like me. But going home, I have an older sister, seven years older. She's my adoptive parent's biological daughter. So going home, it's, you know, I don't have another adopted, adopted sibling. But, you know, wasn't mm -hmm. like the trauma of life. But definitely I was not alone in the Asian region upstate. But I didn't really feel like a closeness to it until much later. Yeah, and maybe you want to tell our listeners where you were born and then maybe a little bit more about your adoption story. Uh, sure. 
So, I mean, first off, uh, as we all know, some things may not be completely factual in our birth history that we were given. So I am currently beginning my birth search, uh, so we shall see. But the information I do know, allegedly I was born in Gyeonggi-do. Uh, my parents, biological parents, unmarried, young, 20, 21, worked in a doll factory. Um, my mother worked in the factory. Father worked as a tailor in the factory. Dated, didn't end up working. Father moved away. Mother, single, young, unwed mother prearranged and I was born and I had pneumonia uh, premature so I was kept in a hospital in Seoul from what I know for about six months and then I flew made that journey to JFK where my adoptive parents traveled on downstate to come pick me up but that is as far as I am aware everything surrounding my adoption yeah, and how has it been growing up in um, you know a unique family dynamic like that? We have guests that had similar experiences too that have adopted parents with biological daughters or sons. But um, how was that dynamic growing up? Growing up, I mean, for as much as we know now, like the whole color blindness thing is problematic in its own ways. I, there was never any any difference or any kind of, you know, othering at all. She's just my sister. I'm her little brother, you know, family is family. I think it was that whole, like, you're American now and you're Jeffrey. You're not Tonsi. You're Jeffrey. You're an American. You're Van Damme. So that's, you know, it's just, yeah. just how it was. Um, I mean, what little diversity in the hometown my sister had friends of Asian descent that she would invite over both to have put me around other Asian people for the first time. So I remember there's like, I was like eight years old and she invited the only Korean guy in her class over. So her little adopted brother could look at somebody, be with somebody that looks like him. So little step of what anyone knew about being a transracial adoptee at that time, but feel blessed for the childhood I had. Yeah. And that's always interesting too, especially at a young age where, you know, people are still discovering their Korean heritage in their twenties and thirties and beyond. Eight years old is kind of hard to grasp on, you know, all those different dynamics, but what do you recall from those types of experiences when you saw other people like yourself at that age? I remember just being fascinated like i'm i'm a child born in 87 in my 30s child of the 80s so like i don't know if you remember like barney and friends or gullah gullah island with a one asian kid with a one <laughs> brian or alex or whatever his name was um but like mm -hmm. that kind of you know one there might be one other asian kid in the class below you or above you and you'd see each other in the hallways and whether or not they felt comfortable like saying hi or being oh you're the two asian people together um but i remember yeah. just i don't know why i wanted it or to hang out or it's just climbing trees with this random high schooler this asian korean high schooler um but i know that's why i sort of pushed into music more not to fulfill the stereotypes but we're never lacking for asians and you know, all county orchestras and bands and music things. So luckily being musically inclined, 
venturing into that world, I was literally surrounded by Asians. I started playing piano when I was three and sort of moved in. I went to school for oboe and woodwinds uh, for classical music, but always being very interested in music, like there were like four other Asian kids in my piano recitals. And it's like, oh, this is how I meet other Asian people. And like, maybe we, we would never say anything to each other, but I know I could be in a room and no one had to say anything about what I look like where, oh, he's just Asian. Cool. Great. And did you, ha- did you have that sense of feeling comfortable in that community when you saw other people that look like you at that young age? Or was it more just, you know, just a visual identity that, that came through and you just kind of went with it? I think it was at first definitely the visual identity. Um, like many adoptees, my mom came in and we did the whole airplane day, gotcha day thing at school. They brought in like a cake with a takeout flag, explained what little kids can understand as diversity is, what adoption means and such. So very grateful because, you know, when you're in elementary school and you spend all year with these kids, end of September, beginning of school, they know who you are. They know what it means to be different, that it's not nice to make fun of people, (laughs) you know, that whole that whole be nice spiel. Um, but it definitely went from, oh, I enjoy just looking at other Asian faces to, oh, I feel more comfortable around yeah. more Asian people. And why I like middle school teenagers. I'm like, okay, let's push the music. Not, I mean, I loved it. Yeah. But, you know, I could go in a place where the room is 75% Asian where I'm used to, you know, being the one of like 400, yeah. one in 400 people. So, yeah. And you mentioned um, like gotcha day and airplane day. I think our family called it special day and uh-huh. it was kind of like a celebration. I remember as a little kid, my special day was important because you got a few gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think you maybe did like a cake and maybe oh, you yeah. got some friends and family over, but <laughs> at that time, I, I wasn't really, you know, as a as a young child into the deeper meanings of what that is. I just knew I was getting cake and a couple presents. But oh, what, yeah. was, what was your experience like, with, which your family called it? I mean, it was always airplane day for me uh, when I met other adoptees. And I'm like, oh, gotcha day. And I'm like, okay, I, I love hearing what adoptees experience of our arrival dates, um, you know, what our viewpoint of that day is now and such, but it was the same thing. It's a second birthday. I got just <laughs> as many presents. I got just as much money. I got a cake and I got Korean things. Like my birthday, I, you know, I may ask for like, you know, from the beginning of the internet, the a Chinese center not button jacket because I wanted Asian things. But like on airplane mm-hmm. day, I would be guaranteed to get like things with a Korean flag on it books on Korea. So like, I love that day. It's, it's the second birthday. It, yeah. You know, it's the parents, it's my parents. They've always said it. It was like, Oh, this is your second birthday. This is the day you were born into our family, that kind of encompassing. So very similar in that, yeah. you know, I don't know what this means, but I get a cake and everybody gives me hugs and kisses. <laughs> What's not <Yeah>. to love? <laughs> it sounds um, just from, you know, only talking to a few minutes, Jeff, that 
you had parents that came into the schools and kind of talked about your heritage on your airplane day. Your parents gave you Korean things. Did that help you discover more of your identity sooner on or want to explore that uh, at a younger age? Um, I think, I mean, love them. They did, I think, everything as well as possibly could have been done. But knowing now, there is a definite line where, you know, you can't hide a transracial adoption necessarily. It's not like, Mm -hmm. no offense with, you know, homogenous ethnic families where, oh, it comes out 50 years later that, oh, you're adopted. So mm-hmm. I think in terms of how they presented it, it was as much as they could present while protecting themselves too. You know, I was content enough to know, but knew that being too Asian wasn't good or, you know, any of those like hard truths of like, well, you're not my real dad like immediate shutdown, like immediate shutdown. So I think later on in life, I'm still, you know, grateful, love my family. My family's my family, but it's definitely a thin line of where they can view you as stepping further away from being their child, the more you embrace your Korean heritage. So it wasn't definitely until I moved out, graduated from college, was living my life in New York, had access to a Koreatown, Korean friends, that I really s- started soaking it all up and buying all my groceries from Koreatown. My food is mostly Korean, really learning Korean, going by my Korean name, making hombok, And it's definitely proven there's the comfort level was safe, of course, back when I was little, but, you know. They give me a Taeguk fan on my airplane day. I'm happy. They're happy. I'm happy. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, I come home and I'm speaking what little Korean I know, really excited. And it's, I can see it on faces. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to have this conversation, but, you know. Yeah. But definitely they were, there's no, there's no hiding it. They, you know, I was not taken to one of those culture camps. I think that was the line for them where that was yeah. that was too much but you know like a book on korea and the flag and stuff like you can't hide it there's a comfort level but i never felt off about that as a kid it's only you know when we're sure. jaded angry adults <laughs> looking back later but <laughs> right but no so what was what was the um conduit for you to start discovering and embracing and practicing more of the Korean heritage? It was moving to New York. Like I, I never had kimchi before I moved. I had to wait 23, 24 years until I had my first bite of kimchi. I, you know, maybe someone made like japte for like a Korean festival when I was little or something. Um, but like going into New York for a musical theater, finding the Asian musical theater community. So Everyone who we see at Miss Saigon and King and I auditions every year, plenty of proud Asian folk. So through my dearest friends now, they introduced me to more, took me to Korean restaurants and just meeting like their Korean mom who's like, oh, you've never had this. Let me cook for you and shove Korean food in your Mm -hmm. face. And it's like, oh, okay. Not that, you know, I... I hold myself of a standard of Koreanness, but it's, you know, it's like, oh, 
there's this entire other part that I have no idea about, but I know it feels good to do it. So it just yeah. access and accessibility and seeing it in front of me for the taking. I'm like, why not? Do you still consciously think about your proximity to growing up in a small town that's predominantly not looking like you? Or do you do you feel um, as you're progressing with your journey that you feel like you're fully Korean, which you are? Yes, we are. We are. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's the fun battle of gaslighting, validating of like, well, you don't speak Korean. And it's like, well, it's not my fault. I mean, I've it wasn't until I met not nice people that I had any idea that I could not not be Korean, where all these other ethnicities can probably claim themselves as such. And it doesn't matter that you don't speak the mother tongue or held to these requirements and such. So I don't think I ever had a question. And of course, you know, when you have no visibility of other Asians, it's this almost freedom of independence where, I mean, well, I'm sure we can, we'll get into it later, but I only wear a humbuk nowadays. I'm 24 seven, usually full Joseon shoes to the gat on top, seven layers a day. I've always been independent and a weird style, like mohawks, orange hair. So I've never been afraid to be me because I've never had a mirror to hold myself against. Where, I mean, we're so different. Oh, Jeff, you're different. You're weird. Okay, I'll run with that. So it's, I've never had necessary like internal shame about anything. It's fine. You want an Asian? I'll give you an Asian. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you know, sassy personality kicking back. But it, it wasn't until sure. now-ish where people feel like they need to gatekeep Korean ancestry and culture and heritage. I'm like, I didn't realize that was a yeah. thing. But, yeah. you know, continue the good fight or whatever. But it's not, it's not a blip on my mind, really. I'm like, okay, you can do your thing. I'm doing my thing. You don't have any influence on me. You don't live my life and you have not had my experience. And even if you did, I don't care. (laughs) And you mentioned Hanbok, and sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but for everyone listening, can you just kind of describe a little bit of what that is and how you got into that form of uh, creativity? Hanbok is, uh, and no worries, I butcher my Korean as well too. I I don't (laughs) even think I'm saying my name or Hanbok right. I just have a stereotyped idea of what it should sound like. Um, but hanbok being the traditional clothing of Korea, uh, you know, encompassing all of clothing history. I, like you may have gathered, I grew up in the creative arts. So like being in theater, I had proximity to the wardrobe department. So I could sew buttons and like mm. stitch things up, make a pillowcase, like simple stuff. So Jeff, can you help out? Sure. Great. I grew up sort of against fast fashion and I would always like dye my clothes, embroider, do something to it. And I got to the point where I started working for an Asian company and who sold like Asian clothing and fabrics. And I'm like, oh, well, what about Korean stuff? And like, you know, we know like for 100 birthday or 100 day birthday or dole or something, there's certain milestones of when humbok would be worn stereotypically. And I'm like, well, I've never had that. So I mm-hmm. ordered a, a vintage humbok off eBay for my birthday. And I'm like, you know, this is part of the Korean experience. Let me get this. 
let me grab one. Mm -hmm. And I know it's it's quirky and weird, but like as an adoptee especially, but most people searching for identity or whatnot, even the a good outfit, when you put something that feels so right on your person, it's like, oh, this clicks. This okay. This is what I want. This is what I'm mm. looking for. So I mean, through a lot of trial and error, I pulled patterns from that humbug that I bought. And, you know, there's a couple other modern humble companies in Korea mainly, but trying to get us not just wearing it for holidays or Chuseok or whatever special occasions that they're daily. You don't have to do what I do by any means, but like a modern jogori mm -hmm. top or something with jeans or, you know, we can be proud of our garment cultural traditions even not on a special occasion. Um, but it led me to dressing like 50% humbok, 50% modern to, I think it's now been about two years or so since humbok has made its way in. And now I'm every day full, mainly Joseon Dynasty, but full seven layers, hat, my hair is shoulder length, it's up in a sangtu. It's wearing that horsehair headband, worrying about running because I'm in little traditional Korean shoes. So it's, yeah. you know, learning history about when this garment came into use. Where does it originate from? Who made it? What's the pattern? What's the fabric? Where did they make the fabric? So by doing my whole research, I'm gaining a lot more historically and knowledge-wise, along with a lovely Korean pride wardrobe. Yeah, and this podcast and myself personally follows you on Instagram, and I can say that all of your clothing is beautiful and really impressive. Oh, thank and you. And we'll, we'll make sure to link Jeff's Instagram in the description. But it really does take a kind of a conscious effort to celebrate and embrace your Korean heritage. And I just want to understand um, the transformation where you are today. And has anyone from your family or maybe some of your hometown acquaintances or friends and family noticed anything or said anything about you know your transition more into the korean heritage more than more so than maybe saying in traditional american heritage mm -hmm. so my sort of like transition into it it's as you can expect it's it's a little jarring for a lot of people um it's definitely not always the fluttering k-drama beauty beautiful silk lifestyle People are honestly a lot more hateful than I ever thought they were. But this is definitely a thing for me. Uh, this is, I know I've stumbled into a lovely social media sense of being uh, through the pandemic. Uh, but like before any of that happened, I'm at home in full humbuk when nobody's looking. Like when I mm -hmm. go to the grocery store bumming it, I'm in my like loosest baji pants and like a modern jogori top and i've got like korean undergarments on so it's it's not a shtick it's it's for me and my pursuit of identity and i just it's addictive in a way um mm. but in terms of like that transitioning over it's it's definitely i carry pepper spray. I carry, you know, loud alarms. I used to carry large bamboo sticks with me just in case. There are lovely people, but as we know, there are some not so lovely people. 
but it's it's definitely a a thing for for me and building i wanted to build a relationship with korean culture and heritage that was not dependent upon a birth search or mm. truth finding down the road or anything of the such i don't want you know that i hate to say worst case scenario but in that worst case scenario i don't want to hate anything about who i am where that those findings aren't reflective of me where i love korea for what i love korea for and i'm finding my own relationship with that but in terms of like people from my old life uh seeing me um i honestly i haven't seen too many of them uh since i've sort of whirled into the humbok wizard uh i think the last time i was home i jumped forward in korean history i chopped all my hair off died at platinum went the full k-pop for mm -hmm. about a summer um right. and that was mildly confusing for my adoptive parents to see um <laughs> i think that's when like bts was like really hitting it hard on in the u.s <laughs> and they came yeah. on and like oh they look like you and i go yeah we're all korean um <laughs> but they i don't think they get it but you know i've been their weird creative fantastical doll playing with gay son forever so watching me run around in silks and a fancy hat isn't necessarily a shocker for them i mean i feel you know for a lot of korean adoptees it takes a lot of courage to to step out and feel completely comfortable in how you feel and how you dress and where you shop and what you identify as can you talk a little bit about you know, other people who are, are, are trying to seek more about their heritage and kind of what you said before, going at your own rate and fo focusing solely on your path. Do you have anything you want to, you know, maybe tell the listeners of what helped you along the way and what you learned during that journey? Sure. So in terms of like the starting point, it's just, just do it. I mean, it's especially, I mean, not just with Humboldt, but with any style. But especially with Humboldt, it's it's our culture. We have every right to be proud of it, wear it, wave it as a banner across our heads, just as much as any other Yahoo in the mainland mother country does. And I can guarantee we probably appreciate it more. But in terms of like getting started, I mean, it's for you what makes your relationship with the garment or the accessory or the little tassels, the norige, just, you know, putting it on a belt loop. And it's just a little tassel. No one may ever see it, but you know there's that little piece of culture there. I think it's definitely good to remind yourself to ground it back. And if you feel like you're pushing it, am I doing this for me? Am I doing this for me or is somebody else pushing me to meet an expectation that is not really mine? Um, then of course, back off if it is not your real intent. I do not encourage, you know, pushing past your own comfortability rate. So whatever, whatever rate you feel comfortable with going. But like I said, if it's like seeking heritage in terms of like Humboldt, there are so many amazing modern Humboldt designers. Uh, they're all on Instagram. You know, we love social media, um, but there are things that you wouldn't necessarily look at and be like Asian, Asian. Right. It's, it's, it's daily modern wear in like muted 
colors and such. So there's ways for whatever level of fantasticness you are comfortable with um, to express that. Or, you know, I have friends who they don't wear humbuck at all, but they do like Korean embroidery. I think there is a girl on, what is it, Subtle Asian Traits. She did the, the king's dragon embroidery by hand. Some ridiculous, like, 70 plus hours of hand embroidering. She's like, I feel so good about myself. This isn't for sale. But, you know, it's mm. doing things for you. And just, it's just really grounding yourself in, like, the second it feels uncomfortable, like, is this for me or is this, am I proving this for someone else? And then don't. Right. It's, it's, it is for you, especially, I mean, not that style isn't inherently a personal thing, but as well for adoptees searching for a connection to heritage, it's, it can be a very, very intimate process. But, you know, I'm a stubborn musical theater loudmouth with a lot of sass. So <laughs> when people tell me I can't do something, I will do it five times as hard and 12 times as built up. So that's my own little kick in the pants where I, someone called me a name when I barely had any humbuck on. And I'm like, okay, you call me that? Just you wait. I'll give you a Korean so hard. You want a Korean? Fine. <laughs> I mean, that's my own, goes against my whole, your own comfortability rate, but you know, I definitely could uh, use some deep breaths in some situations before reacting. But, you know, bits and pieces, it's not a race. Your connection or whatever craft, if you're doing a physical craft, will grow. And it's even if it's just reading about the history of something, picking up a book on Korean history. I'm like, the stuff we never learned about, the hundreds of years of our history and what our bloodlines have done throughout that time and what we've accomplished. It's, even if it's just picking up that book, I think it's definitely well yeah. worth the investment. I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about your college days. So you went to school for musical theater, classical music performance. Yep. You said you played the oboe and piano. Mm -hmm. But you got involved into a lot of things like the National Asians, Artist Projects, other Asian community companies, and, you know, that kind of transformed you into your evolution in your career-wise, working for visual arts, working for the Pearl River Mart. Can you just talk about your experiences there and what's what's going on in, what's going on in New York City right now? How, what's, how would you describe <laughs> yourself right now in your, <laughs> your daily life? Um, well, first in the college aspect, uh, yeah, I went to school for musical theater. I think Theater helped in letting me be all the people, all the things I never thought I could be in, you know, in high school, whether that's like loud or something beyond Jeff, the Korean adoptee who plays classical music. You could be anything in theater and pushing you out of those comfort zones. Definitely, I, I appreciate intensely. But after graduating, moving to New York and like I said, finding the lovely Asian musical theater community. Through them, I music directed the National Asian Artist Project, um, their Broadway community choir, their Chinatown community choir. So it's uh, various actors of Asian descent. It's seniors from Chinatown singing Frank Sinatra while I play piano. It's was mm. 
an idyllic, beautiful, creative Asian world I lived in. Um, but through them, uh, I don't know if anybody, New York City, uh, Pearl River Mart, sorry, a little sales, a little pitch, um, celebrating 50th <laughs> years. Uh, it's, it's, it's 50th year being open this year, but it's it started after like the Cold War when it was so anti-China. They are the first ones to bring in Asian products as a friendship store to understand culture. So it's not the, the red scare of the late sixties. It's, um, but through the years they've grown into a Asian American, pan Asian, Asian diaspora representative for the community. Um, but I work and create uh, visual displays for their multiple locations throughout. Uh, so we work with like a lot of, small Asian businesses. We're working a lot in foods now. So there's like all these cool Korean food companies. There's Queen's Kimchi. Uh, I'm good friends with the people from Kimbap Lab who are making modern Kimbap and they're wonderful. It's amazing. It's feeding my addiction. Uh, we work with H Mart. So I have a nonstop supply of turtle chips at my disposal. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's definitely here. Like I have, I've had, I found the pride of being Asian in musical theater community of what our community can create, of what we can accomplish, of everything we have to be proud of and transitioning to this store of this sort of just reveling in our own cultures, having so much visible love for it and strength to keep the traditions alive. Like, why should you have traditional cultural pieces? Because if we don't, where's it going to go? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if we stop talking about it, what's going to happen to it? So I think the culmination of theater, Asian musical theater community, and this sort of nonstop Asian pride festival definitely helped by being in the New York vicinity of, you know, all the Asian pockets of community here. It just totally enabled me to be everything I am right now, to be the ridiculous humbuck wearing person. Granted, you know, I don't go into K-Town in this. I'm still very cautious around other Koreans. As strong and pig-headed as I am, it just takes one withering look from Anajima, and I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. Hmm. Oh, no. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm a little, you know, cautious about that aspect. Um, I can you know, tell people I'm a Korean adoptee and that I speak very little Korean in Korean. Uh, but whether or not yeah. you accept that is a completely different matter. But yeah, I mean, this is New York life. It's everything we have down here. I can run and grab pork belly at like two in the morning, go get, you know, a good mm -hmm. tofu stew or everything here. I'm surrounded with an insulated comfort Asian level. It's interesting that you mentioned to when you see other Koreans that you are a little more tentative. And I think that just brings us back to that duality of, you know, we can feel Korean, we can dress Korean, but there's also this other side of us that grew up in a very different atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's, it's always interesting, but, you know, I'm happy for people like you that can come on the show and be so comfortable in everyday life, just embracing your Korean heritage. And I'm, I'm interested in knowing how you feel about, you know, being a performer, embracing those roles that give visibility to the community that we're in, and then, you know, trying to be the representation for a platform and elevate other Asian things like small businesses. 
do you feel like that is something that you were born to do or is something that you want to do organically or what is your you know thoughts on giving more visibility to the asian culture i by no means think anyone is like any adoptee is bound to be the soapbox speaker for anything like if we just want to be left alone like there are definite days where i do not entertain anything from anybody ask me where i'm from as first thing i tell you upstate new york that shuts it down mm-hmm. but i <laughs> i think knowing what i know now and talking with other adoptees and at the place i am now i don't feel an obligation but i feel empowered to do so to a as a performer be visible for other asian performers or like if i saw more of that one asian kid on gala gala island what would be different what would be different if we saw a plethora of diverse faces including our own as kids would living in the western world as a korean american how would that be different so i try to think of what my you know like 6 year old self would be like would he want to see that or what is that like in terms of like i guess my speaking up on either my voice as an adoptee or pushing my Korean culture i know there's you know the k dramas and the k pop and the korean wave and everything and i know it's my own journey and feelings and environment as an adoptee where i'm like you could throw us away and you invite everyone else back to the party except us so it's in a wounded adoptee way it's my own thing of well none of this is in english you can't find too much in terms of hanbok or korean culture available in english so there's a spot missing i know other koreans want other crafty koreans want to make hanbok for them or their kids or you know have it available or what not or even non koreans other asians non asians they've a, a valid appreciative interest in it so i know i know there's definitely other people in the english speaking world who love hanbok and wear hanbok but i think i just sort of fell into that in the right time um and i am more than happy to share my pride but once again i never like to feel forced into doing things but i'm very happy and proud of what i've done and how far i've come but i just have to keep my head down and focus it's a weird thing like even going to school for theater and knowing that you're going to be visible my greatest dream was to move to the country and live alone <laughs> so it's definitely you know not where i thought i would be in terms of things but i'm grateful for the communities that i've met and if i can share a little bit more of adoptee truth to people who would never have spoken to an adoptee in their life like frankly about adoptee issues then it needs to be said if we're not going to speak our truths and let our stories be heard then who cuz obviously they won't not adoptees won't so it's a uh, different reasonings for different hats when you went to school that was obviously a big step for musical performance and obviously moving to new york city do you ever find yourself wondering if your life would be any different if you didn't take any of those steps 
I try not to live too much. I mean, obviously, being adoptees, we're like the what if, that alternate timeline. I guess some of us. Um, but I definitely, I mean, as much as I am in different things, of course, I'd love, you know, I still love music, but I honestly think if I, knowing what I know now, or if I could do things differently again, I would, I would go back to Korea before I went to college. I think I would, mm. I would have definitely taken that time, done a gap year or something and headed back a lot sooner where, you know, adult life, adult life continues on and it's harder and harder to get things done or carve out the time. And then a pandemic hits. Um, <laughs> but it's, I think for as much as, you know, I'm so grateful for every opportunity and every place I have been to turn me into this ridiculous person you're speaking to right now. Um, but I, I, I think that's, if I could go and change things, I would run back to Korea as soon as I was legally able. I think that focus, I mean, obviously now at this point with my fixation, but I think that is mm -hmm. sort of where I would divert in the past. Yeah. And, and um, have you been back to Korea yet? And you said you were, you were kind of searching more on your birth history. Is that accurate? Yeah, I have not been back, um, you know, being a poor actor in New York for my adult life, not too much spare money. Um, <laughs> I am beginning my birth search. You know, it's that weird thing where it's like, you got to do it. I mean, you don't have to do it, but, you know, you got to do it. But I'm like, do I want to ruin what's in my head? And then as you learn more as adoptees, I, I I like using the word coming out of the fog, but I don't want to like term overuse the term. But once I found out, you know, more about the adoption system, speaking to more adult adoptees in the community, frankly, that it changed, it changed a little bit where the, the need wasn't just sort of, Oh, that's fun. It's, it became, a different tone in more recent years definitely a different yeah. more serious tone to it yeah well we're glad that you came on the podcast Jeff I, I'm curious to know if I would ever come to New York City what would be your recommendations for some great Korean cuisine or department stores or grocery stores or theaters do you have any recommendations for anyone out there <laughs> that would come out and want to experience everything that what you have for great recommendations I mean as little as our beloved K-Town is, that's whole one blockness. Um, there's some lovely places. I mean, not to be pretty basic, but you know, we love a good olive barbecue chicken. We got one. They have the bulgogi poutine downstairs, so it's like the fries with the gravy, but kinsi and bulgogi. Oh, <laughs> it's so good. Um, it's. I mean, there's always new restaurants coming into K-Town. I think there's like three new fried chicken places that opened during the pandemic itself. So there mm. is a never ending roster. There's some really great uh, new trendy corn dog places. Definitely. Then, I mean, outside of the borough of Manhattan, take a trip out to Flushing. It's they've got a, a lovely cluster of Korean community and such out in Flushing, huge Asian food stores. And it's, 
you step out in Flushing and you're like, oh, wow, I'm in Asia. I am in Asia now. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's theater slowly coming back. The Korean adoptee community is strong within the musical theater community. Many representatives, many adoptee brothers and sisters up on those stages. So we are everywhere, 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 everywhere. There's all these hidden little Korean gems, Korean gastropubs. There's always a new food place to try. So yeah, come to New York safely, of course. Enjoy. <laughs> Yes, and hopefully to all of the all of the rats that were brought up from the flooding will um, oh, <laughs> be less visible on the street. Such a pleasure having you on the podcast. And this season, we're really trying to continue to share adoptee stories like yourself and focusing on the important message that our adoptions that are not necessarily all defines us because we are more than just adoptees. But that being said, what do you feel most proud of right now in this moment that you generally feel like, you know, this is you and something that you want to share? I think it's my whole sort of humble MO at the moment. It's the people who I've met, the connections I've made of just complete strangers on the street. I mean, some lovely, lovely Korean people who I, you know, they come over to me and I'm like, oh, no, oh, no, Bob Sweat. Um, but just <laughs> incredibly interactions where, you know, just complimentary in a way that's feeding that whole Korean needy pride thing where they're like, you make me proud to be Korean. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, mm. um, but I think that sort of my homebook journey, who I speak to, who I talk to, who I get to work with, um, the designers that I collaborate with. Uh, there's an amazing Korean American designer, sewer maker, uh, Christine, her n- handle at Sostein. She's on YouTube. She embroiders, she makes dresses. She's a doctor. She's a mom. She's superwoman. Just, yeah, I, I feel so privileged to be in a community of such amazing people. So, yeah. That's sort of my my proudest bit at the moment. That's awesome. Well, thank you all for listening. And you can follow Jeff on Instagram at Yang Chung Sik. And we'll make sure to uh, put that in the description so you can get the exact spelling. And as always, follow us on Instagram at Soul Conversations. Check out our website at www.soulconversationspodcast.com. And feel free to send us an email at soulconversationspodcast.com at gmail.com. And as always, have a wonderful week and we'll catch you all on our next episode. Thank you, Jeff, for coming in and we wish you the best out in New York and stay safe out there. Hopefully uh, this rain doesn't get too uh, crazy over there. Oh, thank you. It's been such an amazing experience. Thank you so much. I had such a great time. Absolutely. Thank you all. Thank you.